Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Knew that we were going to talk about Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True. Who knew that? Okay, and how many, how, who's read the book? I know if Dan has, he mentioned that. Who else has read? Okay, good. So you'll be a help. I'm on right. chapter 10. You're on chapter Okay, yes. good, good. So please, <laughs> please feel free to jump in at any time and stop me and share. Um, I think the book is interesting. I think he writes in a lively, provocative manner. Um, it's an easy read. However, um, it has a lot of content, and I may not get things quite right or explain them well so feel free to help if you've read or you un you know what I'm talking about just jump on in I won't be offended at all so let me tell you who Robert Wright is the title of the book is why Buddhism is true and uh, I'll, I'll read who he is um, Robert Wright is um, an author he's written um, the Evolution of God, a New York Times bestseller and finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His other books include um, The Moral Animal, which uh, the New York Times book review named as one of the best books of the year. Um, Wright has written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, many prominent publications. He's a recipient of the National Magazine Award for Essay and Criticism a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle, taught psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and the Religion Department at Princeton. Um, so, it's an introduction. And um, you can get this book in the library. So, um, what he's talking about is um, his long-term study of evolutionary psychology. And give me a moment. And he defines evolutionary psychology of the study of how the human brain was designed by natural selection. Um, and his point is that the way our brains are designed it will mislead us and enslave us. And the Buddha said that too. And so this is a comparison of um, what he's learned from the study of evolutionary psychology, comparing it to what the Buddha said 2,500 years ago. And he says, our evolved brains um, empower us in many ways, but very often um, they take us out of an accurate view of reality. Natural selection only cares about one thing, and it's a blind process, he believes not a conscious process. And here it is, folks. This is the part that I love and why I've been enjoying the book, and maybe you're enjoying it as well, Margaret, which is um, getting genes into the next generation. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't care about your happiness, your skillfulness, or your wisdom. It cares about getting genes into the next generation. Um, and the traits that in the past contributed to genetic proliferation 
um, have flourished and traits that didn't fell by the wayside. So a lot of the way we're designed to function in the world, it has a lot to do about survival and keeping our gene pool going and proliferating, not about what will make us happy or what will give us wisdom. And I like that concept. It's a relief to me. I don't know how that feels to you, but it's a relief because it teaches me um, a lot about no self and non-self that I'm not completely in control and that this body-mind is um, got a lot in common with many other body-minds and we're struggling in the same way and it's not so personal and that if we understand the ways that we struggle by the way the brain and the mind work um, and we we can really um, be aware of it and slow down the process that's a gateway to freedom so um, and I'll read a little bit from his book. Um, so he talks a lot about what the Buddha talked about, greed, hatred or aversion, and delusion. And he says our brains and our whole central nervous system are designed for illusion and delusion. And we're functioning from that place. Um, He says, if, the, if these basic sources of human suffering, and this is what the Buddha called suffering, right? Greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, and human cruelty are indeed a large part of the product of delusion. There is a value of exposing this delusion to the light. And he defines delusion as things not being quite what they seem. Um, and he talks about the feelings that are generated through the way we're, we're made up and composed. And he said, through these feelings, anxiety, despair, hatred, greed, um, but if you examine them closely, um, you'll, you'll deal with it better. You'll know it better. So I had this experience yesterday, and I'll read from the book, but um, one of my favorite things to do to practice is to go to the beach right before sunset, dusk, and sit and walk there alone. Um, and I, it's just blissful for me. I feel light and present and it's a great practice. And I try to do it as much as I can. It's a glue of practice for me. It really brings me to or, or just brings this being to a sense of stillness and peace. And we're so blessed to have a beautiful coastline um, up and down the coast. We're really blessed. And so, uh, so yesterday I fought the traffic, had a lot of chores, and for some reason drove down to Crystal Cove, one of my favorite beaches. And um, above Crystal Cove, Believe it or not, across the street on PCH is a big old shopping mall. Of course, it's America. What else would there be, right? Yeah. And uh, I had to park there and walk down the shopping mall, right, to get to what the things I needed to get to the beach because I didn't have everything and park and then get to the way I go to the beach. And so I'm walking across all these shops. And first, there's the uh, ice cream smoothie shop. 
desire. Oh, cold ice cream. <laughs> Yum, that will make me happy. Mmm, I can't, I, uh, yeah, it's worth the $5.50 for an ice cream cup, you know, right? Oh, that will make me happy, right? And then there's some lovely restaurants with great menus and people are sitting outside and I'm looking at their meal because it's dinner time, right? And I'm looking at their delicious meals. One's Mexican and one's Italian and one's Japanese. And, oh, yes, yes, that Italian meal, that will make me happy. Oh, I should stop and get the pasta. And then, but no, the Mexican looks good. No, the fish, the poke bowl looks really good. And then um, other people had pastry and other people, you know, it just went on and on because it's Saturday evening. People are out eating and walking around and then come the stores. Oh, 40% off. I should go in there and get something 40% off. Maybe I should shop now. Forget walking and sitting. There's a sale going on there. So should I go in? That will make me happy, you know. And it just went on every different store from clothing to housewares to Pier 1 to handbags. It just, whatever you wanted is in that mall. All the way down to the other end to Trader Joe's. And I go into Trader Joe's to get some water uh, for the walk. And then all these yummy things are in Trader Joe's. I should get that salad. I should get that fruit. I should get that bag of chips. I should get that you know, whatever it was, uh, that snack. And it, you, you could see the mind working, right? This through the sense door of want, of tanha, of craving. Want, 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 want. That will make me happy. That will make me happy. That will make me happy. And this is what we do. And we're hardwired for it. Give me something new, something that gives me some temporary happiness. And uh, my mind is hardwired to believe that it's going to make me happy for a long time. This is going to do it. This is the fix. And it doesn't. It's temporal. It falls off very quickly and leaves us kind of empty. And sometimes it works for a while, but it's never an answer, and we just don't remember that it's not an answer. And by the time I got down to the beach, to this area where I like to walk and sit that's quieter, um, and started to do the practice, I realized the illusion and the delusion, none of those things would have been as inherently satisfying as pulling away from the senses and finding stillness in concentration and mindfulness. That was, for me, the real... Uh, what was needed from a challenging week. None of those things would have filled that place. So, uh, but we're hardwired to believe. We're hardwired to believe that people, places, and things, these temporal things, will fill us and change us and make us better people. And uh, capitalism, of course, feeds on that, doesn't it? So let me read a little bit about what he says. And um, so he starts uh, the book with um, the movie The Matrix. Who's seen The Matrix? I'm I'm out of it. I gotta get to the movies. We'll, we'll have to have a movie night. I did not see. The, it's supposed to be the Buddhist movie. I did not see the Matrix. 
Okay. So he says, um, at the risk of over-dramatizing the human condition, have you ever seen the movie The Matrix? It's about a guy named Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, who discovers that he's been inhabiting a dream world. Uh, the life he thought he was living is actually an elaborate hallucination. He's having that hallucination while unbeknownst to him, his actual physical body is inside a gooey coffin-sized pod. I won't, I won't give this away for those of us who have to go see The Matrix after this. The choice faced by Neo to keep living a delusion or wake up to reality is famously captured in the movie's red pill scene. Neo has been contacted by rebels who have entered his dream, or strictly speaking, whose avatars have entered his dream. And um, their leader, played by Lawrence Fishburne, explains the situation to Neo. You are a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste, see, or touch, a prison for your mind. The prison is called the Matrix, but there's no way to explain to Neo what the Matrix ultimately is. The only way to get the whole picture is to see it for yourself. He offers Neo two pills, a red one and a blue one. Neo can take the blue pill and return to his dream world, or take the red pill and break through the shroud of delusion. And Neo chooses the red pill, as do uh, Western Buddhists, right? <laughs> we are the red pill people. <laughs> um, so he goes on to say um, that Western Buddhists, long before they watched The Matrix, had become con convinced that the world as they had once seen it was a kind of illusion, not an out-and-out out hallucination, but a seriously warped picture of reality that in turn warped their approach to life with bad consequences for them and the people around them. Um, now that they felt, thanks to meditation and Buddhist philosophy, they were seeing things more clearly. And among these people, the matrix seems an allegory of the transition they'd undergone. Um, so it's been known as a Dharma movie. So, uh, he says, so you can find the line. Natural selection cares only one thing, or I should say cares in quotes about only one thing, since natural selection is just a blind process, not a conscious designer. And that one thing is getting genes into the next generation. Genetically based traits that in the past contributed to genetic proliferation have flourished, while traits that didn't fall to the wayside. These structures and algorithms are built into the brain and shape our everyday experience. So if you ask the question, what kinds of perceptions, thoughts, and feelings guide us through life each day? The answer is the most basic level. The kinds of thoughts and feelings and perceptions that give us an accurate picture of reality. No, the most basic level, the answer is the kinds of thoughts and feelings and perceptions that helped our ancestor get genes into the next generation.
And he starts with an everyday delusion. And he chooses the everyday delusion, delusion as a donut or junk food. Um, and he gives us an example of that, that um, many of us crave food that isn't good for us, and we want it badly. And it's very hard to um, talk ourselves out of it. And he, um, this is like an illustration of how our brain works against us due to this um, natural selection. So in um, the in the old days of thousands of years ago, when we were in hunter-gatherer um, part of of time, it was healthy to crave something sweet because the only sweet thing around was fruit, which was very very good for you, and you could eat a lot of it. Today, with junk food, we have that craving to eat something sweet, and it completely works against us. So our brain is kind of hardwired to the survival of thousands of years ago and not to the present. This is why he's talking about mindfulness. It's so important to be able to work um, with these tendencies, this kind of greed, I want it now, it feels good when it isn't really good. He talks about that as illusion and delusion. Right? Not only that, the mechanism is designed so if we were the kind of beings that wanted something sweet and we ate it once and then we laid back and we chilled and we said, that's it, I only need it once, or any kind of nourishment, we would starve to death. We wouldn't survive. So our mechanism has a short-term gain, short-term desire, right? And then um, it just wears off and we need, we need it again and more and different and bigger and better. And this is where our advertising comes in. I was in a coffee shop, and um, they're advertising coffee as cold brew, and it looks like beer. Mm -hmm. And now it's $5, right? More, bigger, better, <laughs> let's change it, right? Because the brain will, oh, oh, I need that. That's different. It's better. You know, always something new. It's better, more. We're designed that way. If we were chilled, at, chilled up, relaxed beings that didn't care, we wouldn't have kept eating. Same thing with sex. I thought I'd wake up the room just by <laughs> saying that word. <laughs> but, you know, same thing with sex, right? If, if it was so fantastic... Oh, okay, some of us woke up, right? If it was so fantastic, um, right, once... If it was so great, it'd be, oh, I had sex once, it was great, highlight of my life, and now I'm done. <laughs> no species, right? We have to keep wanting it. And we have to ruminate and fantasize about it. It's to keep, right? Obviously. So this you that you think you are, who are you? Who are you really? Who are you? And this is the beauty of Buddha's teachings, right? It gets you to look at who are you underneath these drives. Um, the other one is a little more complex and really speaks to a lot of our anxiety. I could even feel it now sitting here, which is a uh, social anxiety that the brain wires us up for. So in the old days when we were hunter-gatherers, um, you, if you were well-liked and well-respected and well-regarded, you had a better chance of getting your genes into the next generation, 
and your kids. <laughs> so it was very important. It became very important to be well-liked and well-regarded. And if you weren't respected or regarded, you were shunned. It also speaks to survival, right? If you're really thrown out of that group, you're not going to do too well. It's better to be liked. So we have developed more of an innate social anxiety from just hardwired. We're, we're hypervigilant. We're looking and checking out, do you like me? Am I okay? Do you, am I important? Am I saying something important? Am I entertaining you? Am I boring you? Do you think I'm stupid? Do you think I'm inadequate? Right? And the problem, he says, is that um, thousands of years ago, if you're in a hunter-gatherer situation, how many people do you know in that group? I don't know how many there are, but however many there are, they're the same people you see over and over again and interact with. And so um, he feels that um, there's, there was less anxiety because people already knew you. Right, they knew you from two months ago, or a year ago, or five years ago. They already kind of knew you. You didn't have to keep proving who you were. Whereas in modern society, we're interfacing with people all the time, new people. So we have to like kind of prove ourselves, and make sure we're okay. And this creates a social anxiety. And I would say adding on to a culture with isms, you know, a culture that reinforces. Racism, sexism, homophobia, um, whether you have to look a certain way, ageism. How, I mean, the ageism is fascinating, right? Um, you have to, you know, if you're heavy, if you're thin, if you're, you know, if you have money, if you don't have money. Um, so all of this really builds up a, a, pro, a proliferating social anxiety that we're struggling with. Uh, that's present, that is part and parcel of our brain. So, I'll, I'll talk about one more in the book, and, um, and that's anger, aversion. He talks about how in hunter-gatherer societies, um, anger served a purpose and was adaptive. If somebody um, came into your hut and took something, right, it, it was probably adaptive to react fast and say, get that back. And you knew you could guard your little hut or your little stash or your garden or whatever it is you were guarding back then. Uh, it was very immediate. You were establishing firm boundaries with that anger. So he talks about how the brain... It's un that when anger gets created, it's uncomfortable, it's unpleasant. Like for me, the unpleasantness of the air right now, you know. Um, but that there's a pleasant in the reacting fast. And he talks about road rage, how we really get off on road rage. Like there's this justifiable anger feels good. When I'm justified with my anger, it feels good, right? But in modern society, road rage just feels horrible. And when you react in anger, it never works out very well for you. It's just not skillful at all. It's just not adaptive anymore. But yet, we still have that charge to react. So what do we need is mindfulness. We need that wedge. We need that ability to stop and look at these things that are imprinted and driving us that are part of our neural structure, of our evolutionary structure, 
and to be able to pause and look back right this is what the buddha talked about knowing greed anger aversion delusion hatred seeing them and the defilement these are all the defilements being friendly knowing them knowing their flavors so they who's running the show are they running us Right? Are they running us and we just don't know? Thinking about walking through that shopping mall, like how much these stores were running me. You know, maybe I should buy that. Maybe I should buy that. Maybe I should go in. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should eat there. Right? You know, how much of this is running us and through awareness, momentary awareness, pulling back and pausing and knowing through awareness, we get to see the charade, the charade, the delusion the illusion and the delusion of a constructed self. And by the way, if we're so run by this, are we really, is there a CEO, as he says? Is there a general manager present? Is there an executive director? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not in the ways we think. So this is the practice, and um, it brings me to the construction that Michelle McDonald did 40, 50 years ago, right? Um, and Tara Brock talks about it, which is the rain, using rain. And we've talked about this in the class. Um, when this desire comes up, when this aversion, the anxiety, the social anxiety. And um, I have this beautiful quote from Pema Children. Being preoccupied with our self-images is like being deaf and blind. It's like standing in the middle of a vast field of wild flowers with a black hood over our heads. It's like coming upon a tree of singing birds while wearing earplugs. This social anxiety doesn't allow us to see well, feel well. And most of us, when we're caught in it, we're, um, we're really caught in a place where we can't connect. And there's that illusion, because most people aren't watching us that closely because they're so worried about themselves. <laughs> you know, So this, this illusion perpetuates, and none of us is getting the good stuff when that happens, right? So, um, so the rain is, what's the R for? Recognize. recognize, pause, recognize, notice. Who's running the show? What drives are running the show? What's that new thing? And how do we get caught and snagged? And we all do. So recognize. Recognize. And the A? Acknowledge. Acknowledge and allow. And I would also say relax. We know that relax is a part of it too. Relax into, right? Okay, so we're going to allow it to be known and seen. Anybody allow the feel discomfort with the heat? Did you allow it and feel it and... Get in, and what happened when you did? I was still hot. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you get distance from it. You get distance from it. Yeah, I can feel the pleasant in the unpleasant. Um, and the neutral in it, and the equanimity come in through there. And what's the I for? Investigate. Investigate with intimate attention. Right? Investigate, no. No. And what's the N for? 
non-attachment, non-identification, rest in natural awareness. Right? Pull back from the story. Pull back from the story. Pull back from the story. Right? And that's where equanimity lives and some peace lives. So Rumi tells us, move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down in always widening rings of being. That's what we, this invitation of mindfulness, these doorways. Before I stop, I just want to say there's one more that I failed to mention, which is the, um, the example of the snake. So if you're on a hike and you know that there are rattlesnakes, which in our area there are, right? And you hear something rustling in the bushes and you're afraid of rattlesnakes, what happens? <laughs> right? Fear response. Well, and then you notice it's a lizard or a, a squirrel running by, right? But if you're really caught in fear, even as that lizard runs by, you may still see a snake, right? You may still see a snake. The snake may be there. So in order to survive, we've gotten this imprint of um, creating a story and then being very, very fearful and being hyper alert all the time and sometimes fabricating. And we know that in urban life from um, if you see you're walking down the street and it's at night and you're alone and a young person of color walks behind you, there's that story, right, for some people, right? So we're creating this illusion through fear and we're manufacturing fear and then we're living out a fearful world. We're creating stories around fear. That's another way that we get snagged is by our fear anxiety and fabricating it and sending it out and getting the system all on adrenaline and then we ruminate on the fear and we tell stories, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? So it's another way that we get caught. So, so many doorways, this photo of doorways, right? So many doorways of um, pausing and finding out the truth of the way things are for us and being less imprisoned by this body-mind, this fabricating body-mind that is more about survival of genes <laughs> than about um, peace, freedom, wisdom, um, generosity, compassion, caring. Right? We get to cultivate those things just through awareness and practice. And uh, the practice takes a lot of time and effort and work sometimes, you know, it's not always easy. We don't always um, feel like it's working. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes an ice cream cone really makes me happy. A lot of times a 50% off sale really works, but only for a while, right? Not forever. So I want to give um, other people a chance who have read the book. If there's something that you feel could be said, should be said, that I've missed, um, yes. Yeah, I think another, um, in addition to sort of, um, you know, avoiding death or harm, uh, feeding yourself the appropriate calories and things like that, and then also um, being angry at your neighbor in the village for stealing your stuff, um, there's a lot of 
everyday brain operating that has to do with evaluating other people. Because if you live in a hunter-gatherer village of like 150 people, and that is the number. There are studies that show like you know 150 people really well, or you care about the opinions of 150 people because we used to exist in groups of about 150 people. And if they got larger than that, they would break and split and there'd be war and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so if there were 150 people, you were having to figure out who, whom can you trust and who's gonna have your back you know, so whom should you invest your resources in to do them a favor? Are they going to pay that favor back? Things like that inside the group. And so there's just constant evaluating and judging of other people based on very limited, you know, interaction. And it's the same for self-preservation of your reputation um, so that other people think that you are the trustworthy person and that you are strong or a good leader or, you know, whatever smart and and so there's there's the self-preservation part that causes a lot of our own suffering and our own anxiety but like everywhere you go all the time what you're doing is looking around and evaluating the outside and evaluating the people you bump into because if those were one of the 149 other people in your group you needed to know about them for your own survival yeah thank you thanks for adding anybody else that want to say I've got a question. What about our gay brothers and sisters? Or people who decide not to have children? Is it, it seems like it's a pretty... Oh, there we go. Got the answer over here. I, I agree with you. I think the book um, completely... Dis it, it, it takes the assumption of like this super average brain and life and then just operates based on that. And what it's trying to point at is the completely average normal brain and life... Uh, is, out, is still a delusion. And, and that's kind of the point of the book. But there's nothing at all about any kind of um, mental health, uh, any kind of alternative lifestyle. It just says, like, if you were one of 150 people and you were going to be the most successful member of that group, so, like, the most dominant male or that most dominant male's partner, basically, the, that's, like, the archetype. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that the book kind of touches on. It ignores anything else about what your mental life might actually be like and what your, your life might be like. So this doesn't even, doesn't even like touch those issues. It's limited in scope. I mean, it seems like there's a little more than one to have children. Say that again, There seems Charlie. like there's a little more here than one to have children. Well, it's about, it's not about wanting to have children, it's about some kind of natural selection where the gene pool is, is not a you, it's just trying to keep the species going. That's all it is. And, yeah, also self-preservation. Yes. yes. And, and survive, you know, survive. Right. And, uh, you know, all those things that, you know, we, we have, we crave in life, you know, companionship. Social interactions; those are those are survival instincts as well. And, but yeah, I mean, but I'm stuck with like Chris, man. I, 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 the whole propagation uh, and getting your genes. I mean, that just speaks to propagating children, and it, that seems very limiting. Well, but yeah. but let's stop there and pause because what we're struggling with, I think, is the impersonal nature of survival and biology the basic biology right and we're struggling there's got to be a morality in it or a me or a 
group think, yeah. and they're saying no. As a matter of fact, no, it's not. It's it's biology doing its thing. Anybody yeah. else want to add to that? Well, you would well, have to have an environment for things to flourish. So the fact is, you could have sex all you could to get, and that's only for a limited age group. All right. Because we're not talking about people our age here, because survival I is a different. Biology is saying that it's procreation. Not survival, not how long people survive, it's whether you can procreate or not. And you have to have an environment that's conducive for things to survive. So if you don't have a good nest, things aren't going to survive, no matter how many litters you have. So, I mean, it's... Also, the people upstairs could want to kill us all because we're part of 150 and they're part of somebody else's 150. So in terms of, like, social cohesion and your, your social life mattering, that might matter not even for the next generation. That might matter today for the survival of all of us right. in order to then maybe make the next generation. Yeah. Like, survival today also really plays a huge role, you know, not just propagation. Because that's really about biology. Yeah. Yeah. Neuro neuroscience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's not about social mores. Yeah. But I will say one thing um, that a neuroscientist um, told me, which is the field is still quite new. Mm -hmm. So anything we say is relative. And even this book. Every, there's a lot of relativity in neuro neuroscience and there are a, well, your son's a neuroscientist. There are a lot of opposing theories. It's complex. So we're, it's just like, you know, a finger pointing to the moon, but you can't touch the moon. And we still exist in a world. I mean, the Buddha was mm -hmm. a patriarchal universe. Mm -hmm. And Buddhism traditionally is pretty patriarchal. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we all have existed in a social context. And, and it's interesting in that, I mean, it was developed in a delusional world. And we have different delusions, because if you go back 200 years, they had a different social set of things that we see now that they didn't. And three generations from now, they're going to look back on us and say, whoa, were they blind? Right? I mean, it, it's all pretty relevant. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Oh, I was yes. just going to say that um, it could be considered potentially a, a flaw, and also we don't like it because we want there to be more. But... I think he's trying to use a scientific approach to lead people into the book and to lead them into Buddhism. And so he's appealing to that science of the evolution of the genes and how we evolved as a species. And we are a species and animals, even though we don't always like to think that. And so um, I think that that's his premise, good or bad, right or wrong. And so, yeah, unfortunately, that premise excludes some people potentially from the set. Maybe it's just procreate and protect. Yes. Yeah, but I don't think it's all, you know, there's many ways to um, transmit things. It's not just through the, I mean, we're at social transmission. We, we see, you know, animals that learn how to use tools, and that gets passed on for generations and generations. So, so a gay person that's maybe not be directly contributing to the gene pool can contribute in other ways that do get transmitted kind of like in a genetic manner. So, and we have mitochondrial DNA, we have all sorts of ways that things get transmitted. So I don't think we should be hung up on, you know, chromosome X or Y. You know, I don't think it's all about that. Yeah, so it's, 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 he's talking about 
gene and drives, but it's also socially driven as well. Yeah. I mean, technically, all of your kin, if you live in a group of 150, you share genes with a lot of those people. So, like, my brother, you know, there was a, another evolutionary psychologist who, someone posed the question to him, would you die for your brother? He said, no, but I would die for two of my brothers. Because technically, two of his brothers carry more potential for the propagation of his, their family genes than him. He said, I would die for two brothers or nine first cousins. Because <laughs> 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 that technically is the number of people that like, outweighs his personal ability to pass on genes from his mom and his dad. And, anyway, so kin, kin matters a lot. And kin also, I mean, and the, the love of your loved ones and the hatred of the other is also something much discussed. You know, because of the importance of kin, and our biological predisposition to see the familiar person in a way that we don't see the stranger, and how how um, that doesn't work in our modern context either, but it's extremely emotionally compelling. Well, then that's ego. Ego is is in in essence biological. Well, that just goes against so many things. I mean, there are so <laughs> many people that that risk their lives for. For people have absolutely no genetic context to them. Yeah. Sure. So uh, just look at the Thai boys that were rescued. Yeah. Well, How but, many but let's that were involved right. In that? Let's talk about that. See, but but I think what we're talking about is when human beings get out of unconsciousness mm -hmm. and reactivity. You know, a lot of this stuff is like very blind. It's illusionary that keeps us caught and stuck. You know, the Hatfield versus the McCoys. That's pretty diluted and blind and keeps us stuck in a lot of um, harmful, harmful ways to other beings. But when we wake up, we wake up to compassion, loving kindness, wisdom, um, you know, wise speech, wise effort, wise doing, and things like this beautiful rescue from the cave, and amazing things happen. You know, our potential is there when we wake up, but we have to wake up. We can't just be reactive. You know, a lot of hatred is pure reactivity, blindness. Have, yeah. The gene pool is a lot bigger than we think. I mean, yes. wasn't that the six points of contact? I mean, we are all related to everybody if you go back yes. just yeah. a little bit. You know, so. Interdependence mm -hmm. is one of the sort of true yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Also and, you know, go ahead. This is true. This is true. And, and we have to keep in mind something like, you know, we feel very strongly about the Todd boys, but we're not, you know, really rescuing the person out on the street, you know, right outside, starving, it's, it's a lot of times we, uh, our, the way we make judgments are based on, uh, you know, how we evolved over millions of years, um, don't necessarily serve us in a, in a modern society, it confuses us in a lot of times. Well said, we put yeah. On. Yeah. yeah, beautiful, the well said, yes. Well, I, I think another area that might be interesting, based on the way that this discussion is going today, is that um, compassion is still being studied and evaluated as, an as whether or not it's an evolutionary trait, and that it could have evolved within us to be compassionate to others as an evolutionary trait. And uh, some beliefs are that it um, that it was only towards kin to keep your specific unit going, like your 150 people yeah. going. Um, there's a belief that compassion evolved, and it goes back to how Wendy started the conversation, was that uh, those who are more compassionate were viewed as more likable, and those who are more likable were, you know, more likely to get lucky and uh, procreate. 
get your straight. Uh, and so there's still, there's still some work going on uh, in the science of compassion, which kind of dovetails with maybe a lot of concerns that I hear in the room today. So there is an acknowledgement, there's a scientific acknowledgement that scientifically compassion is very possibly a, a trait that has evolved with us and that is in our DNA. So. And is evolving and getting stronger because yeah. in order for us to survive, we're going to have to be a lot more compassionate and interdependent. So there are a few books written about that, yes? Yeah, yeah. About how um, compassion and caring will um, be very strong, important traits for the human being to survive. You know? And it's not just between people, it's between it's interspecies. Mm -hmm. Interspecies, yeah. yeah. I mean, we yes. care yeah. about our pets, and we care about animals, and we care about, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's ecological. Yes. It's it's interesting too. It kind of came up that um, of of though the idea of compassion growing. I mean, those of us sitting here, we have this desire. Uh, but while you were walking through that mall, we have another kind of challenge, and that is every store that you walk by probably pinged on your phone. And now it's a part of your phone's information as to what it's going to come up on your phone and, and what it's going to advertise to you. Because who's gotten home and then said, I see you were at such and such today. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and answer these questions like, well, is it a restaurant? Is it Mexican? Is it a parking? <laughs> Things like that. But you're, we're constantly being... Our phone, I mean, the whole media is now another challenge to our serenity and our values and, um, you know, we're being bombarded. This advertising element you spoke of, it's, it's very, it, I mean, we need to be aware of that as well. And the 150 is interesting to me. I've fed feral cats for years and years, and it's very interesting that once the feral cats, um, they're neutered and re-released and fed, um, and they create this community, it's very interesting what happens. They're very self-limiting. People think, oh, you're feeding them, okay, you've got nine today, you're gonna have 10 tomorrow, you're gonna have 11. You know, the word's gonna get out and cats are gonna be coming from everywhere. But it, it's not true. It's very, they create a limited society. And and if there's, uh, it's usually nine in my experience. And, uh, and then if there's a 10th that comes, it's going to have to go someplace else because this group is already established. Mm -hmm. So it's very that's very interesting. This mm -hmm. kind of close set. Um, and one thing more that came to my mind is the fact that kind of what they're talking about here is the limbic system. This is our ancient mm -hmm. yeah. nervous system. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, 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 one of my specialties was balance. And it was very interesting that sometimes that we would have patients that would have these weird um, balance problems, and it was tied to the limbic system, this overactive ancient system in the body that was reacting to its environment and uh, creating chaos for the patient. So it's just kind of interesting because we're looking at 
the average person, you know, this, this norm, and then we get this old, old mind or old brain that, action that came into, and we weren't really looking at that. We're like, oh, wow. We're, we're looking, at, we're analyzing the normal brain, but this old limbic system raises its ugly head again. So I think... I know I've begun to rewrite the serenity prayer like God grant me the serenity to get out of my limbic system into my <laughs> neofrontal cortex so I can find some wisdom and reason not to react <laughs> to that I know Richard had his hand up like 10 minutes ago and I, I we were there was so much activity here I couldn't get there so go ahead I'm, I apologize well I just wanted to talk about the biological imperative a little bit there's a lot of species out there that mating involves her being eaten. The what? Being eaten. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like spiders and um, praying mantis and, you know, just, you know. That's true. Mm -hmm. They end up making it possible for the um, genes to be passed along, so the biological imperative is a pretty big deal. We may want to deny it. <laughs> I just feel like. Um, the, my appreciation for this book, um, obviously, he's um, building a very wide audience for Buddhism. But aside from that, I have a sense that we're at this point in time that if we do not fully understand greed, hatred, and delusion with um, global warming and um, our resources and the tribalism that we're seeing here, um, you know, we don't want we we don't want you in our country, and we like you, and we don't want you. You know that we we need to really wake up and give um, society uh, community another place to stand. And I feel like some of the Buddhist teachings are that other place to stand. Um, you know, it's just the metaphor, get out of the mall and go sit, <laughs> right? Just stop consuming so much, go sit. You know, withdraw from the senses, find um, the richness and the beauty and peace within. You know? It's not about how much we consume, it's about the stillness that we can find from the mind. And so I want to end on that note and, and apologize because I couldn't even touch all of this book. There's so much in here. We didn't really talk about the aspects of no self and some of the other things. And um, if you're interested, we can talk about it again. Let me know and we can talk more about the content of the book. Um, so I and apologize for not doing the book justice, but making an attempt. Well, it certainly um, created a lot of conversation. I think it was a, a great uh, source of thought. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.